Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. We're ready to go. We are live. All right, so this is the first time. There we are, big party in here. So this is the first time that we've ever done something like this. It's pretty cool. So we're going to be hosting right now the, the traditional live stream that we have, but with some in-studio guests, which is exciting. Um, before I get started, if you guys can just let me know in the chat if you can see and hear me before we get going, just type see and hear into the chat. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus on what the people that are here need. And this is really what the focus of the group, I would love it to be, because it's one thing, those of you who know me know I can just go on, I can talk for five hours straight about real estate. Um, I don't really need you know, too many cues, but this isn't necessarily about what I want to learn about. It's what everybody here wants to learn about. So what we're going to do is we're going to go topic by topic, person by person, figuring out what everybody here needs help with. And I'm going to do the best that I can. There's no pre-prepared questions. So maybe one of these guys in the audience can stump me. We'll see. All right. So they'll do their best. So we'll just kind of go round robin. I'm going to ask uh, somebody in the audience to come up with a question. I'm going to repeat the question because I know that it may be difficult to hear. And then we're going to kind of just go on. And by the way, if you're listening live and you want to put a question into the chat section, you can do that too. You know, he's asking about funding sources and the obstacles that you could kind of run into. He mentioned banks, private sources, partners. So yeah, that is kind of a multi-pronged kind of question. If, I'm going to start out with the easy ones first. What types of you know things would I expect obstacles expecting to run into when we're talking about banks? So if anybody here has ever kind of heard the phrase like this person is bankable or they're not bankable, um, Traditional banks um, are much different than like if, you, if you're a real estate agent and you're going out there trying to get an FHA loan or you're trying to get a VA loan or a conventional loan, all that a traditional lender cares about is like, how much do you make and can you carry the property? Do you have a good credit score? Whereas a commercial lender and most commercial lenders that like you would work with around here and for those of you who are in different parts of the country, they're typically like your local community banks. So there's smaller community banks that are built on relationships. They want to see a track record. So typically what that means is that you're probably not going to walk into like an East Boston Savings Bank or whatever these community banks are and just say, hey, I'm doing my first deal. I want to get commercial funding for a deal. They're probably going to say, okay, show me your portfolio. Show me what you've done. So that's an obstacle. How you get around that obstacle is obviously doing deals without commercial banks first. Um, second, you know, area that he mentioned is like what, you know, obstacles, if I'm, I'm running into like raising capital from just everyday regular people, the obstacle that you run into there, again, it's similar. It's the track record. So I don't care how much net worth somebody has. They built that net worth probably by working really hard and they don't want to risk that money. So if somebody has capital in the bank, what they're going to want to look for is they're going to want to look for somebody that they trust has a track record, et cetera. And then um, you mentioned partnering. Partnering has all sorts of potential problems. And it doesn't matter whether you're partnering on a deal, partnering in a business, et cetera. Partnerships can definitely like go sideways very easily. What I would say to that is that you have to make sure that if you enter into any sort of partnership with anybody, that you just make sure that very clearly defined roles and responsibilities. And that's where kind of um, people that have never done this before can go wrong where it's like, okay, we agreed to do a deal together or start a business together. And then all of a sudden, two months later, they're like, well, no, we agreed on this. No, we didn't. And you know, when, if me and you have a conversation right now, I guarantee that we'll both leave thinking something a little bit different. Yeah. Cool. All right. PF, what do you got? 
So hopefully I'm stumping you with this one. All right. Is, Let's see what we can do here. <laughs> Actually, I don't think so. Uh, what is the minimal margin that you look for in order to, to feel that it's a safe investment? Um, like, do you look at a percentage or you look for a dollar amount? Now, is that, is that on a flip or on a buy and hold? Buy and hold. Okay, cool. All right. So, um, so a flip and a buy and hold. I'll, I'll do the flip because that one's a little bit easier. Um, so for the flip, we look at flips in two ways. First, what's the profit going to be? And we have a minimum profit amount that we'd want to see. And then what's the risk profile? So how we do the risk profile, we use a formula it's a common one that a lot of investors use. It's 70% of the after repair value minus repairs. So what that means is that if we think the property is going to be worth $500,000 when it's done, you take 70% of that, gets us to three fifty, and then you subtract, let's make it easy that the repairs are $50,000, we get to what we call a max allowable offer of $300,000. That formula is a risk-based formula. Meaning that like it takes into account that what if the market falls 5% or 7% or 8%? If the market does fall, which we're in an environment right now where we could debate, but this is probably the biggest time since I've been in real estate that that could be a real conversation, um, it takes into account. Now, we also want to see a minimum profit. So if you do, if you take a really low number, like an ARV of like $100,000 and you go 70%, of 100,000 minus repairs, and then you see what the profit's going to be, the lower the numbers are, the smaller the profit's going to be. So I would never flip a profit right now, a property right now that had an ARV of 100,000 because I might only make 10. And it's not worth it for me personally to do a flip to make $10,000. So we want to make sure that it fixed the 70% of ARV minus repairs. Plus, we like to see at least a $35,000 profit margin. Um, but we're typically doing more like 50, 60, 70, 80,000. Then um, on, the, on the rental side, we look at it in a couple different ways. The biggest shortcut that I've ever used that like I built a pretty good rental property portfolio on is called the 100 times rule, meaning that um, if you take the monthly rents of a property and multiply it by 100, let's say you have a three family and each unit's renting for $1,000 each, you have $3,000 of monthly rents. Multiply that by 100, you get the $300,000. That will pretty much almost guarantee that you will cash flow. And believe it or not, like our first few hundred units that we had, we just used that formula and that formula worked. Um, now, there are a lot of other ways that you can kind of make this stuff a little bit more complicated. Um, in terms of like a profit margin, if I'm owning like a two or three or four family property, I want to make sure I'm at least making $1,000 a month when factoring in vacancies and all these other potential issues. All right, John, what do you guys? Yes. Um, how would I interview and choose an accountant, a, a tax planner, as mm -hmm. someone who is a, an agent and an investor? Yeah. So um, one thing I'm going to say about like professionals, and this is where... It's unfortunate, but as somebody who's an investor or a business owner, I think you have to understand it first. And I know that that doesn't seem like that should be the case, but if you interview 10 CPAs and you don't know what the heck you're trying to like look for, you're going to have no idea and you're, you're going to be gambling. Now, the one thing I know when it comes to tax and legal is nobody is ever going to care about you paying less taxes more than you. Nobody's going to care more about you not getting sued than you. Nobody's going to care more that if you litigate that you win than you. So unfortunately, like I don't believe that there's any, there's, there's not too many professionals where I would feel like, okay, I can be completely uneducated in an area. And then I'll just ask who's the best person and then bring it to them. Because what happens if they don't ask the right question? What happens if there's something that, that you know, you know? So I know it's a little bit painful, but what I would probably do is I'd spend some time, a little bit of time getting educated on it first, and then I would interview a few people and then kind of see what you come to. Now, when it comes to like investing, I would ask around. 
And that's something that we can definitely help you with. I can probably provide you with like two people that would make sense to talk to. Um, but even with that being said, I still would never want to put myself in the seat of like, okay, this is the person that knows everything. I'm going to just kind of take their advice and not learn. Cause I think that's where you can kind of get into to a, not trouble, but like you won't maximize your own um, situation. But I can definitely provide you 100% with a couple of good CPAs. But you asked me a question yesterday on Messenger that like that's what I would study like a little bit more yourself so that if you go into them and they say something that doesn't make sense to you, you can kind of have that like back and forth. All right, Leah, what do you got? In-state or out-of-state? That's a really great question. Um, my follow-up to you would be, are you investing money passively into a deal? where you have an operator that's doing all the work and you're just cutting a check or are you the one operating? All right. So that's, that's a great discussion. So, all right, I'll give you like an example. So like, for example, like we build apartment buildings, we raise capital for apartment buildings. We offer, you know, 12 to 20% rate of return when people give us money. So cutting a check means that if you cut a hundred thousand dollar check, at the end of the year, you're going to have like $120,000 or $115,000. That's completely passive. In my opinion, if you find a really good operator that you trust and you just have a check to write, you could invest anywhere. Now, if you're telling me, okay, I now need to operate, now that makes me a little bit nervous for somebody to operate like out of state. It's not that it's not doable. It's that it raises the degree of difficulty to a level where like that better be like your primary focus. And I know you sell a lot of real estate, so it would almost have to be like I'm focused on building up an operation, whether it's like in Florida or Texas or like a lot of these other states that are very attractive to invest in. If you're going to be like the operator, then it needs to take up a lot of your time. And for you specifically, I don't know that I would do that because you make good money selling real estate. So you'd almost have to like switch gears and focus on that, which probably won't make sense for you. So I think the bigger question for you is like, do you want to be an operator locally or like use money to invest? And there are like pros and cons of both of those. Um, if you're talking about like getting the greatest return, being the operator is going to give you the biggest rate of return, but you have to learn new skill sets, you have to put in more time, but you'll get a bigger return or you're cutting a check and you're getting a 10 to 20% rate of return, which you're probably not getting 30 or 40. Like you're getting a good rate of return, but it depends on where people are at in life. So like my, my best friend, who's one of the laziest people I've ever met, he's a really good salesperson and he signed on, he worked for a biotech company, signed on. And he got a bunch of stock options and he's, he's a really good salesperson, but he doesn't work hard. And, um, but he got these stock options and long story short, he ended up cashing out for $4 million and he just invests his money with us. He doesn't want to operate. He doesn't want to do any work. He doesn't do any work. So he just wants to be completely passive, which I think if we're all kind of sitting in this room, like that's what we all want to do. But we have to look at like, what's our current capital base? If your capital base is like $50,000, you don't have enough money to just have your capital work for you. You also have to do active things. But if you have $4 million, then it's almost like, why would you be active? Because you really don't need to be. Um, Joe. Where would you look for, if you were a passive investor? Yes. What sources would you look at? What metrics would you look at? What due diligence would you do? Yep. So if we're talking about passive investing, the number one thing that you want to find is an operator that you trust. That's the biggest thing. It's like, because you're almost like adding a partner to your, to your life, right? So they're like almost, they are working for you. You're putting your capital to work and they're doing the work. So what I would want to look for is a track record of somebody that you like you see what they've done, you feel comfortable with it. Um, and then other things that I would kind of think about are like areas. So again, like if you have money and you want to be a capital partner into somebody's deal, 
you can invest anywhere. You know, you can invest anywhere in, in the United States. Um, but again, I think it comes back to like, who's the operator in terms of operators. There are a lot of people that do this. So there are a lot of people that they call it syndications. There's a lot of people who do syndications. There's a lot of great operators out there. Um, I would think about like geography because you probably do want to like travel out there um, just to do your due diligence to make sure that everything kind of lines up track record. I would look at the asset class too. I know what I'm very, very, you know, what I like. Um, we build apartment buildings, 20 to hundred units. I feel that those are very safe. I like them. Um, they're in good areas, but there are a lot of other types of investments that people do that they syndicate. You know, people syndicate like ATMs, people syndicate vacation properties, people syndicate, you know, strip malls, like all these different types of things. So one thing I would think about, I know you mentioned that you had a background in real estate and I would kind of think about like, out of all the different asset classes, like what are you comfortable with that you would have almost like an easier time underwriting yourself? Like if I were you, like I wouldn't want to invest in like an ATM like syndication unless that was your background. But I would want something that was aligned with your background. Obviously, you have a lot of experience. So you could probably underwrite deals that are similar to what you've done. And that's where I would kind of start. But besides us, I can also talk to you after about like different options. If you have a deal that you're already working on, like a converting a property into a short-term rental and the deal goes south and you need to partner with somebody, how would you, like you mentioned before, I should raise capital. Mm -hmm. How do you propose presenting to, and to who do you, how do you find the people that have the money that want it? Yeah. So when you're talking about raising capital, I mean, we and you talked about this um, on the phone briefly, but the first thing I would always start with is like my, my SOI people that already know, like, and trust me. And when we just did a round of funding, $4 million for, um, $4 million for an 88 unit in Nashua, New Hampshire. And we raised that very quickly. Why? Because I got 20 people in a room that already knew me, liked me, trusted me, and have seen what we've done. So raising money definitely is not like a, okay, I need money. No one ever knew that I was in real estate. Let me go out and get, you know, a couple million dollars. It's definitely a process. I mean, it's no different. See, this is why, you know, real estate agents have such an advantage because you guys, you're, you already know this process. Day one, how would you let all the people that you know, know that you're in real estate? Okay. Let's just change the topic. How do you let everybody know that I'm a real estate agent? But I also do investing and I also have investment opportunities. It's, it's just a different conversation. So how do you execute on that? It's the same ways. It's social media, it's newsletters, it's emails, it's, you know, lunches, it's coffees. Like anything that's going to work as a real estate agent is going to work as this. And why investing, again, is so great for agents is because if you meet with somebody that you're going to have coffee with anyways, that's somebody in your SOI. Like, do you guys think investing is a topic that a lot of people are interested in? It's like, you could probably get meetings with people in your SOI that they wouldn't, oh, you want to talk about me buying or selling? They're probably going to get annoyed. You want to talk about investing? Most people are going to be down for that conversation, which is why like investing in investing and in being a retail agent, like they complement each other. They actually help you. Even if you didn't, you weren't investing it's a good tool to use just as an agent. I can just tell you, like we do, we've, we've done over a thousand flips. We've renovated a ton of apartments. Um, we, we have very good construction crews and we made the decision last year to not do any projects that are going to be longer than a three month renovation. Multiple reasons for that, but this is going to ring true even more if you're new. Um, big projects are much more likely to go over budget for a lot of different reasons. Um, big projects are also likely to go over time for a number of different reasons. But 
the big thing and the reason we made the change was because of the market exposure. So who here, like raise your hand if you think that there's a chance that prices might go down in the next 12 months. Right. So like two thirds of the room, um, I, I can't tell you where they're going. Nobody in here can tell you where, where they're going. But this is like the first year where I felt like, huh, I think we're going to make less money in 2023 than we made in 2022 because of that. I mean, I definitely don't think we're going to get a 10, 15% price increase next year. So if you're taking on like a big project and you're new and then the renovation should have been 80, but, but it becomes 120. And then all of a sudden over the course of that nine month project, prices go down 5%. Now you're really like your risk profile is going so far up. So I would always rather do a deal where like it's less renovation if I can. But with that caveat, one caveat I would say to that is obviously it's easier to find a deal you can make money on when it needs more work. So, but if, if you're asking, I got one that needs a little TLC, one that needs a full renovation, I'm going to go with the TLC all day long. Um, so these are all really good questions. And one thing I'm going to say about all these questions is that this is just, you guys are sitting here, right? You guys know how to sell houses. You're all agents. All of this stuff is like 101 investing, but like you have to like understand it all and you have to commit to like learning it all. Meaning like if you, again, think back to like when you first became an agent, like what company did you work for when you started? Okay. And how much training did you have? There's a lot of training, right? And, and there's always training. Agents are getting trained all the time, right? Like almost every brokerage has a lot of training, unless you're at like a small, tiny office, right? Why do they have all that training? Because it's a big commitment to learn how to be an agent, right? It's the same thing with investing. And that's where like, I think some people, like they miss the boat a little bit because they don't understand like how much of a commitment it is. And they'll go to like a training session a week to learn how to be a good agent, but they'll go to like one for investing like once a quarter. Um, but to answer your question about like, what do you do when you have no track record? There's a, there's a few things. Um, I'm going to talk to you guys later a little bit about like the inner circle program, but part the, one of the biggest pieces of the inner circle program is that we'll partner with people on deals. Okay. So one thing that you might want to consider, and it's one thing, it's what I did is I did bring on two partners in the beginning that are still my partners today that had capital. And that was, that's one way that you can do it if you have none. Um, the second thing that I think some people don't do as much of as, as, as maybe they should is to really analyze like your own situation. Now, when I started, I truly only had $6,000 in my bank account. I truly didn't have other assets to like use. But a lot of times I see people and talk to people that like they do, they can pull a line of equity or they do have some money in the bank, right? So again, for me, that wasn't relevant because I had no money. But if you do have some money, you may need to use your money for like your first couple of deals. Um, the, other, the other strategies are like, getting a deal off market. So this is a, another way that I started. So I, I, and this is why like I always advocate not just buying and holding, but also like flipping um, or assigning deals. So I got a two family off market in Somerville that I wholesaled none of my own money and made $115,000 on. And this is another thing that like sometimes people take, they don't appreciate enough is like, if you're doing a couple of wholesales or a couple of flips in a year, that could be like your down payment money for your rentals. And most people in this room that are agents, you come across like a deal here, a deal there. So I'll give you an example like of how like the inner circle worked for somebody that's in it. And again, how, it, how even if you don't partner with us, how it could work. So two agents, they are a team. They're at my brokerage, but they're also in the inner circle. Um, they found an off-market deal. Their friend's mom passed away in Andover. And they came to us. They said, okay, like we're in the inner circle. We want a partner. 
Um, we partnered on them with a deal. We made $300,000 on the flip. Now, that is not normal. Like I told you guys, average profits are like 40, 50, 60,000 on a flip, but they put their side of that transaction was $150,000. That's probably down payments on like one or two multifamilies. That was a deal that they came across just being an agent, right? And because they could partner with us, because they're in the inner circle, they were able to like leverage that for, for, for more down payments if they wanted to. I would say, you know, never let a good deal pass you up as an agent. Hey, everyone. This is Tom Caffarella. I want to quickly interrupt the podcast to, number one, thank all of my loyal listeners of the Agent Investor Podcast and tell you guys really quickly about an exciting event we have coming up. Uh, It's a two-day event. It's called the Passive Income Real Estate Investor Event um, that you can find out more details at passiveincome.com event.com. We're going to be doing a two-day training session teaching all of the agents and all of the investors at the event on how to achieve financial freedom through real estate. If you're like me and your goal is to not work 80, 100 hours a week grinding, selling real estate, flipping homes, um, definitely check out this event. We're going to teach you how to build a passive income portfolio so that you can retire, so that you can work when you want, how you want, and ultimately achieve financial freedom. So again, go to PassiveIncomeEvent.com for more details. And we look forward to seeing you at the upcoming event. All right, so what's the question? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't want to deal with tenants, codes, and termites. I just want to own it and then delegate and then just sit there and collect. I want to be like you. Yeah. <laughs> Dealing with tenants and termites and all that good stuff. I mean, I don't think that anybody should really have to do that. I mean, I don't even really see that as being like that big of a challenge. I mean, finding a good property manager. Yes, it does take time, effort, and energy to do, but there's a lot of good property managers out there. So, you know, there really shouldn't be that much of a hassle or headache to find a property manager. And if they're not working out, I would just, you know, keep keep looking because they're definitely out there. Does anybody here have a good property manager? A couple people. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, just in this room, there's there's multiple people that have good property managers. So, I mean, it's doable. So, I actually, if you asked me that five years ago, I would have given you a different answer. I thought in my, where I've kind of changed my perspective a little bit on a lot of different things is, you know, if you read a book like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The 4-Hour Work Week, like, there's a lot of, like, okay, you have a problem in your business. You, you have tasks that need to be done in your business. You hire somebody, and then you're kind of, like, passive. Like, you're kind of, like, um, you know, it's easy, basically. And I, I, after doing this for a while, I've just not found that necessarily to be true. And it goes back to the same thing with the CPA and the attorney thing. And I think with almost every facet, I would want to do it first. And that's something that like, even when we hire people into our company now, like I like to do the job, even if it's for like two weeks so that I can understand it before I have somebody else do it. So on my first one, I would do it myself so that I understood like what it was all about. Because if you don't understand what something's all about, then you go to hire somebody, you don't even know what to ask them. And so that's where, like, I, I have kind of an issue with some of those books. And, you know, I, I just don't believe that, like, they're necessarily the best advice in some instances. So the question is, does my business have a credit line? And yes, it does. Um, and we use it for, you know, operations. So one thing, I think what the question is more isn't necessarily, does my business have a credit line? It's like, could you use a credit line, right? So, well, we have just operational expenses. We have payroll, we have rent, we have everything to kind of run the company. So we have that line to draw down on if we need it. So we don't, we don't necessarily, like, the thing with, like, lines of credit on businesses is, like, so I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I kind of interpreted the question as, like, 
are you asking like can you use it for like investing yeah 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 i mean you can you can you're you're technically only supposed to use the line of credit for like operations but people do use it for other things um but lines of credit like they're not usually typically that easy to get like banks don't love giving lines of credit to like small businesses um we do have one but we're like we have i think 40 employees and pretty decent size like revenue and stuff like that i don't i know this wasn't your question but like i don't think that that's gonna help necessarily too many people in the room i wouldn't i wouldn't that's not like a funding source i would really think too much about and again i know that's not your question but i'm addressing maybe what the curiosity might be in the room um i think we have a few hundred thousand for our size business you know it's it's not a lot given the the, the volume so um you know the first deal we ever did was 13 cameron ab in somerville see the sign on that wall that's what the the, the brokerage was named after so why the, why the um why the assignment fee was so big why it was 115,000 um so this was in 2000 at beginning of 2009 um when we first started investing we would generate face to face appointments and we would go out and we would make offers on homes um we were very scared to do our first deal very scared it took me 6 years to do my first deal and I was so scared to do my first deal that even though my numbers told me I could offer her $400,000 for the property, I offered her 300,000. So I would have only made 10 or 15,000, but I offered her a hundred under what my number said I could pay. And she took it, you know, like when it comes to making offers to sellers, it's like, um, what's the, the three, is it the three little bears? Not too hot, not too cold. Is that the one? So, so if you make, if you make offers too high, right, then you're going to lose money. If you make offers too low, like the one I made in Somerville, it's going to be rare to get it accepted. So if you're out door knocking, mailing, calling, texting, whatever you're doing to get deals, if you make really low offers all the time, you will get one once in a while, but you'll do a very small amount of deals. If you make it, you know, the offer kind of like just right, yeah, you're going to make less, but you're going to do more volume. Um, wholesaling and assigning in this market for a deal for only like 5000 that could be an issue with your buyer's list. I mean, there's no deal that you could bring me that I wouldn't at least be willing to pay 10 for because it, it, a deal never comes down to like, oh, I can... I can pay you five, but not 10. Like there has to be enough margin so that that 5,000 doesn't matter. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, so in terms of, um, you know, finding deals, there's a lot of different ways that you can find them. I did do a training that's in Facebook that's an hour long on that, but I'll give you kind of like the ones that like work the most. First thing is you have to make a determination. Am I going to spend time or money? If you're going to spend money, be prepared to spend a lot of money. It costs me about eighteen to $20,000 in marketing for every deal I get. That's mail, that's TV, that's Facebook, that's Google pay-per-click. It's a very crowded space with people that are bidding a lot of money on these things. And it will probably start to come down as I, I so my, one of my close friends who runs open letter marketing, you met Justin, right? So Justin told me, like, as soon as the market started to shift, he lost 30% of his clients because people are scared. So people pull back on marketing. So, like, the thing with flipping that's so interesting is, like, there's never a good or a bad time to flip because there's, you're always on both sides of the coin all the time. You're always, like, either in a market where it's easy to get deals and hard to sell them or it's, it's hard to get them, it's easy to sell them. And then with marketing, it's like, well, marketing cost per deal went up so much. Why was that? Well, because profits went up. Now, as profits go down, people are going to cut back on their, their – so, like, it's, it's, a, it's crazy how, like, the economics, like, always make it, like, a good time but never a great time to flip. Um, but in terms of finding them, so if you're going to spend money, 
then you're talking about probably mailers or pay-per-click or Facebook ads. So we're, we're now focused a little bit more specifically on buying properties at auction. Um, and buying properties at auction is something I haven't done for over five years for the reasons that you just mentioned. So to me, buying properties at auction is not really buying them off market in my own definition. I want to get face-to-face with a seller in their living room negotiating with them. In terms of buying properties that are occupied in Massachusetts, you got to be willing to have a big loss because it's tough to get people out. I do know people in Massachusetts that don't care. I know people that are very aggressive and borderline criminal that will use criminal measures to get people out of a property. I will not do that but I know people that will do that. And that's the type of thing that like, if you're buying properties occupied, you either have to almost go down that like dark road of like, you know what I could, maybe I could go to jail for for what I'm about to do, but I'm okay with it. You'd be surprised guys. Um, and, um, or you have to be like, okay, I'm going to go through the court system, which in Massachusetts is, is totally insane. Now you might think, okay, well, I've been told I could just walk up to the person and say, hey, here's $30,000 and you'll leave. I just tried doing that. Not on an auction property, but person, two family in Dorchester, there's a squatter living in the basement, not even in the first and second floor, in the basement, who's a relative of the owner. We tried to pay them $30,000 to leave. They would not leave. So when I look at occupied properties, the risk level for me is way up. Now, what happens, by the way, if you own a property and it's occupied and it takes you a year to get out and then six months to renovate it? Does that fit in with my personal model of like wanting to be in and out of properties? Like I'm taking 18 months of market exposure, which is the exact opposite of what I don't want to do. So I'd rather pay $20,000 in marketing to get that same deal vacant on the terms that I want. But then if you're going to spend time, then you've got to talk about doing things like calling and door knocking. And one thing that agents kind of take for granted, I think, is networking with other agents. So I have a friend that his entire business is built on networking with other agents and finding deals from other agents. You all co-broke with people all the time that come across these deals. Most agents do not even think about capitalizing on these opportunities. They don't even think about it. They get a house, it's beat up. The person's like, hey, just I want to just sell it as is. And they're like, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's list the property. And they convince them to list and go on to the market. On a buy and hold, it's a little bit different because on a buy and hold, you're holding it for a long period of time. So on a fix and flip, you're basically, you have a ticking time bomb that says, I need to sell this property within a window of time, right? Like you can't be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm just going to hold it for an extra like five years. Whereas on like a buy and hold, it should be a strategy where it's like 10 plus years that you're going to hold it. So I'm a little bit less concerned about, you know, as long as I can cash flow and hold the property with tenants, as opposed to like a single family occupied by either the old owner or tenant, now I'm like owning that property, needing to sell it, and it's 18 months later. Yeah, there's two things there. Um, the first is like doing a 1031 exchange, which is a, a vehicle that you can do, which basically if there's if you were going to pay capital gains, and then you can identify another similar like-kind property of greater or equal value, um, you don't have to pay taxes. You can take the profits from one property and then buy another. Um, the other thing that sometimes people do that can be a mistake sometimes is instead of just refinancing the existing property and holding on to it, they sell it. So if you can refinance, get capital out of that deal, because that's tax-free, and then put that money down into another property, that can sometimes be better. It's pretty simple. I mean, banks banks want to lend on real estate that has equity. So if you have... If you have a piece of real estate that has equity, banks want to lend on it because they consider that to be a, a lower risk. 
Well, when you do a 1031, you have to hire a 1031 intermediary, which is like a company that focuses specifically on doing 1031s. And um, I mean, there's documents and hoops that you have to go through, but it's not complicated or hard to kind of pull off. And they walk you through all that. So when you hire a 1031 intermediary, they'll tell you exactly what you need to do, and then you just have to do it. You know, if you if you work with a company that you like, I wouldn't switch. But it is not the type of it's not the type of thing where having like a good one is going to like do much more for you. So I, it doesn't really. As long as you're using one, it's it's not like you need to like shop around and interview. 10 different 1031 companies. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if you, if you, so, so this is going to get back. We're going to talk a lot more about this book traction. And I know that you're new, right? So this, I'm going to like, you're at a point now because you are new where you could be doing a million different things. You need to get focused on getting educated on the stuff that's going to impact your business the most right now. So, we're talking about a 1031 exchange. Do you own an asset that you would 1031 into? And I asked that for a reason. I would literally delete 1031 exchanges from your brain right now because it's going to be, it's going to fall under the category of like nice information to have, but not useful for you today. So when, when we get off of this session, uh, the live session, we're going to talk about this book here, the traction book. And we're going to talk about what are these things that you should be thinking about, you know, because there's there's too much to learn to be like, oh, I just want to learn everything. So we need to figure out, like, what are the top two, three, four things for you? Because they're going to be different than you, because you may have that. You may have a building to 1031 and that might be your top priority. But for you, I know it's not. And that's the reason I asked the question. So anything with financing is going to require an appraisal. So is there lending on it? But you're talking about like bumping up a sale price above what it would be, right? Yes. So the bank's going to come in and be like, okay, I'm going to give you a certain percentage of what that value is. And if, if, if the property is really worth 800000 and you go, oh, let's make a purchasing sale for a million, bank's going to come in and be like, it's not worth a million. We're not giving you money based on the million. Okay, but you were originally talking about like, bumping up a purchase price above where the market was at, right? Oh, current appraisal right now. Okay, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, first, I wouldn't assume that. I think it's a possibility, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily make any pricing assumptions right now. I'm not making any. The only pricing assumptions I'm making is like, I don't believe that we're going to get like another big bump. Um, but they could go down, but say they do go down. And so holding on to the property. So you probably could, but you're only going to get the differential between the three and a half percent and the 20%. So you're just talking about getting like another like 15% of equity. The only thing though there is the taxation of it. So you might lose on the taxation of that game because let's say that there's, so you get a $250,000 exclusion per person. Say it's two people, it's five hundred thousand. Say the sale is seven hundred thousand. There's two hundred thousand of taxes that would probably negate what you're talking about. But this is getting into like a complex like situation that I would need more information. I'd have to like draw it up on the board and then think about it. And um, which we can do like after we go live. But I I think that it's probably better to move on to a more broad question. Um, yeah. So that's a great question. And the only way I can answer that, I get asked that question a lot. The question for the people who might not have heard it is, you're just starting as an agent investor. What do you do first? I can't answer that question until I know what your 10-year goal is. And it has to be written down on paper, clear, very clear. So some of the stuff that I would think about, and again, that's why I really like this book. Um, I guess step one is I would read this book in all seriousness. Um, I would read this book because some of the stuff I'm going to talk about is really relevant to where you would start. You really, this is a hard thing because nobody knows where they want to be in 10 years. Exactly. It's not possible. And, and even if you think you know where you want to be in 10 years, 
something's going to change. Um, you know, like I thought I knew where I wanted to be in 10 years. I had four kids. It's gonna, what I'm going to say is going to sound really dumb to the people who have had kids, but my priorities changed a little bit once I had kids. Something I didn't think about. Really didn't think about it. 10 years ago, my daughter's nine and a half. My priorities are a little different now. So what I want is a little different now. So I did spend time trying to figure out where I wanted to be 10 years ago, but it's a little different than where I actually want to be right now. But with that being said, you have to at least start there and say, okay, where do I want to be 10 years from now? How many hours a week do I want to be working? Right? How many vacations am I taking? What's important to me? Do I still want to be you know, a real estate agent? Do I want to be just an investor? Do I want to be both? Do I want to be completely passive and just invest my money? And then you also have to get together what that figure is. Like all, whatever, wherever you want to be in 10 years, like I need X amount of money per month and you have to have a plan on how you're going to get it. I had somebody who came to one of these events. They had $500,000 and they wanted to earn $5,000 a month of passive income. That was their goal. They ended up investing that money with us. Now they have $5,000 a month. They don't have to do anything else. So when we're talking about what should your first step be, we got to figure out like, where are you at today? What skills do you have? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And then how do you bridge the gap? So we definitely need to know where you want to be in 10 years. Because if you don't know the answer to that, then like you just mentioned cold calling. Might be a strategy to use, might not be. That's just a strategy. But like for that person that wanted to earn, you know, 500, they wanted to earn $5,000 a month in passive income. If, if they said, should I cold call? And I said, yes, would make no sense for their plan. Even though that might be a recommendation for 20% of the people that we talk to. But, you know, like this stuff is all, that question is like an inner circle, like specialty type of question where it's like, you guys can show up to all of these. I guarantee you'll learn a lot and I guarantee you'll feel good about the information. But then when you leave, it's, it's not about like what you needed. It's about what you specifically need. Right. And that's going to be totally different because every one of us is in a different position. Do you have kids? Oh, how old are the kids? Oh, what do the kids need? Does your spouse work? Do they not work? Like everything is individualized, which is why like, um, I, I sell the inner circle program so hard because I know it's what a lot of people need. A lot of people need the extra individual guidance to say like, where are the gaps? Um, but I would start definitely with like the 10 year, because if you don't know the 10 year, then it's like you could, you could implement any strategy and it might get you where you want to go and it might not. Oh, all right, Tyler. Well, somebody said that, this is the last person and they're right there. So, so this question is a very common question for agents. And my thing to you would be, you just basically said like, I'm used to going into a house and pitching. I'm going to get you the most amount of money for your house. Is that the right solution for everybody? So when you go in, and this is what I always say to people, when you go in to any selling situation going, Hey, I've never even met you. I've never asked you a question, but here's the solution. I, I think that's the wrong thing because you're going in. You have to ask them questions to figure out what they need and then deliver them the solution. So when we go in, we meet with about 120 people per week. We only buy four houses. So there's 116 people we meet a week that we tell them don't sell to us because it's not the right solution. The right solution is probably what you're typically doing. So when I'm going into a house, <clears throat> I want to, on any selling situation, I don't care if somebody's coming to me, they want to buy my product. I want to ask them a bunch of questions to figure out, does this make sense for you? Right? So if I'm going into a listing presentation, I'm going to go in, I'm going to talk to the person, I'm going to look around the house. I'm going to ask them, like, what's the most important things to you? How do you plan on selling? Do you want to like deal with doing repairs or dealing with inspection items or having some timeline uncertainty? And this will be more relevant now. 
So we haven't had this happen to us in like seven or eight years. Has anybody had to do a price reduction in the last few months? You guys remember what those things are? So there's actually going to be much more of a need for a cash offer in moving forward. Because what's happening as the market shifting is you have some sellers who have a timeline need. I had to sell in 60 days. Six months ago, you could walk in as a top listing agent, be like, yeah, no problem. I could probably shave off 15 days if you need to, right? Not saying that that will always be the case that you can't get it done in 45 days, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening that's elongating that uh, selling cycle. So even you could even have sellers that want the most amount of money you put it on the market and then they actually go with the cash offer because they have a timeline deadline. So in terms of like everything, all of this stuff goes back to education and learning about like, what are the benefits of the cash offer and who are the, who is it right for? Who is it the right solution for? So that when you identify the person and you've actually done it for us, you've already done it. So you kind of know what it looks like. Um, but just identifying it and being able to like help the person. So it's not about going into like someone's living room who should be a retail seller and telling them they should sell cash. It's about having your eyes open to being like, who needs the cash offer and generating more of those like potentials. All right. So um, you guys are still here, but I, I do want to like cut this at an hour because I don't know. I don't know. Does it even matter? It probably doesn't matter, but I've always cut it at an hour. So um, for those of you who are listening live, Thank you. Um, if you guys like this uh, format, we can definitely do more of this. I do like having people here in person. It boosts my ego by 12% when I have a live audience. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess um, maybe we can end with saying goodbye to everybody. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys make very money. much. All right. Yes. Make money, please. Thanks again for listening to the Agent Investor Podcast. And especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show and leave a review, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get free weekly education strategies and to connect with other agent investors across the country, join our free Facebook group at agentinvestor.com. Again, that's agentinvestor.com.